HMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we will be joined in just a few moments by Jay Sefton, who is the actor in a one-man play. We want you to know about the title, which is Unreconciled. You want to hear this. First, we have a bit of a fish wrap for you. Today's newspaper is tomorrow's fish wrap. Two pieces of good news. First, today is Giving Tuesday. You can, and if you're able, we'd suggest you should, give to the philanthropic endeavor of your choice. This is when our community comes together with persons across the country saying, we can make our communities better. We can make our lives for everyone better. We can do this together. It is Giving Tuesday, and this is our opportunity to help. Buzz? I love to use the word opportunity. You know, it doesn't matter if, if you're affluent enough to be able to afford large numbers in your giving, then um, recognize how lucky you are and do so. But if you don't have that much money, giving $5, something that's meaningful to you, should be meaningful to you. It, I think it, it is an opportunity for all of us. And it is meaningful, in fact, to the organizations because every person who gives allows the organization to say, look how many people in our community support us. And our mission. Yes, indeed. I know, you know, for me, I've uh, a long time, I know you feel the same thing, Bill, uh, for community legal aid. Um, this is the opportunity for us to just ask people to help our neighbors who can't uh, afford to have their unmet legal services met, but for organizations like Community Legal Aid. But all of us have our favorite organizations. It is really time to step up and say, I am part of the solution. And Community Legal Aid, as you point out, is civil legal services, people who are losing their ability to secure food, people who are being evicted, even though they deserve to have housing, people who have no housing and need to get into emergency shelter, people who need the necessities of life. That's what CLA does. We should also note that Buzz is on the Franklin County Fundraising Committee for Community Legal Aid. I serve on the Hampshire County uh, Committee as well. And we served together when this organization was Western Massachusetts Legal Services for decades. So 24 short years, Bill. Let's move on to another story on the front page of today's newspaper. Representative McGovern's U.N. message, ditch the nukes, front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, front page of the Greenfield Recorder as well. U.S. representative is first member of Congress to address international body on the issue. Well, congratulations to Representative McGovern. That said, he doesn't seem to have a very large body of representatives behind him in this endeavor. Well, I think he's used to being uh, fairly, not alone, but uh, have a small cadre of supporters. But, you know, this is so important. There are 69 countries that have ratified uh, this treaty to eliminate nuclear weapons. Um, there's another 28 countries in the process of doing so. And uh, Representative McGovern is imploring the United States to join those countries. Yeah, we should note none of the countries uh, that have nukes have signed on to this nuclear ban. Uh, this is an issue that we have explored with the leaders of this endeavor, and we will have them back on the show, we are sure, soon. Another story I think important to note, the hostage for a ceasefire, the swap, has been extended for two days. I don't know if it's going to be more than two days, and I obviously don't know how much longer it will go on, but every moment of peace, I think, is worth celebrating. I hear, hear to that. Um, you know, I, I don't know uh, how many more hostages Hamas is willing 
to give up without starting to invade the Israeli prisons that are holding real terrorists, the hardcore people that, that uh, Hamas wants to get back out of those prisons. So uh, these exchanges are wonderful. These civilians who, it, it's a nightmare, and we're really glad to see that. And every day of a ceasefire is another victory as far as most of us are concerned. One last quick note. Front page of the Gazette, front page of the Recorder 2, Bill calls for taxing the wealthy colleges. Students back idea aimed at endowments over $1 billion, including Amherst, Smith, and Mount Holyoke. Amherst, I think, is about $3.5 billion. That's with a B dollars as an endowment. Smith, about $2.2 or $3 billion. Mount Holyoke, about a billion. And this is a proposal brought by FENOM, the organization uh, Public Higher Education Network of Massachusetts calling on state lawmakers to support legislation that would impose a tax not on the endowment but on the investment returns from the endowment. If this modest proposal were adopted, it would mean $2 billion a year for education here in Massachusetts. I don't know if it has a chance given that, well, institutions with endowments of billions of dollars probably have a lot of influence and, of course, would oppose it. I've uh, heard Harvard described as a, uh, an investment bank with a, a subsidiary. With a university, university attached, yeah. Yeah, right. But, Bill, I was, when I first read that headline, I thought, well, this would thwart the intentions of the donors who created those endowments, um, who wa- thought their money was going to be used to support education and scholarship. Uh, but you pointed out that is not the case. Well, it's a tax on the income from what's in Harvard's case, uh, a 55 or $56 billion endowment. Also point out that the federal government already imposes on those very, very high income, extraordinary large endowments, a very modest tax as well. So this is not a new idea. It's not an idea that has a legal impediment. It's just a matter of political will. Other stories that we have covered uh, in the past and that I think really important to uh, continue to cover uh, have to do with uh, sexual abuse and sexual abuse by priests in the Catholic Church. And I am so pleased that we have with us today Jay Sefton, who is the star in a one-man play that will be shown at City Space in East Hampton beginning, I believe, this Thursday. The title of the play is Unreconciled. Jay Sefton is an East Hampton resident. He's a mental health counselor. Uh, His other job, I received an email from someone whose opinion about art and theater and literature I really respect. And what, what Patricia Lewis said to me is this, unsolicited. Jay, meaning Jay Sefton, is hands down the most extraordinary solo show I have ever seen. I hope you get a chance to see it. Jay Sefton, the title of the play is Unreconciled. Tell us what the story is, if you would, please. Wow, that's, uh, <laughs> that's quite a nice compliment. Um, so Unreconciled is my own story of uh, being cast to play Jesus in an eighth grade passion play by a uh, pedophile priest um, who was later defrocked after the 2005 grand jury report in Philadelphia. Um, and subsequently, in 2018, there was a, uh, a victim's compensation fund that was set up by the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Um, I took part in that, 
and decided... You as a victim were yes. entitled to some compensation from the Catholic Church for sexual abuse? Is, is that... that's, that's right, yeah. So I, I had been receiving... Um, it was 2007, I reached out to the Victims Assistance uh, Coordinator at the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. They offered to pay for therapy. I took them up on it. It's probably some of the reason that I'm a mental health counselor today. Um, and then in 2018 the Archdiocese set up this program. Now, New York had just set up a sim similar program uh, run by the same attorneys. And so they sent packets out to everybody who had, you know, had been receiving therapy or was in touch. I think there were 352 just in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia that were sent out initially um, packets to victims to partake in the uh, compensation fund. And did that number grow? Were there more yes. than 352 victims? Do you know how many vi victims of pre-sexual abuse received compensation in the Philadelphia Archdiocese? I believe there were 400 and maybe 25 claims. And let me ask you th this, Jay Sefton, uh, talking about Philadelphia. Uh, let me take this very brief detour. How did you end up here in western Massachusetts in East Hampton? Uh, so... From Philadelphia, I uh, went to Austin, Texas. Uh, That's the wrong direction. Jay. Yes, I know. I don't know, I know how to tell you that. I was going towards the warm weather and um, ended up in Los Angeles for about 13 years pursuing acting. And uh, at the time, I worked in a restaurant with who would become my wife, but we were just friends. She moved from Los Angeles to Massachusetts. I was back in Philadelphia for about three months in 2010, and we reconnected. Uh, love brought you to this region. Exactly, yes. That's the short answer. <laughs> love <laughs> brought me to this region. Uh, we lived on the Cape for about five years, and um, we needed to move and had this romantic notion about western Massachusetts. A few people said, you should check out Northampton. So we came here for a weekend and uh, spent that weekend saying, could you eat that omelet at Jake's for a year? And we are like, yeah, we can do that. So we rented an apartment in Hadley and then eventually moved to East Hampton, and we've been here since. Okay, the play, Unreconciled at City Space in East Hampton, which will begin its uh, show on November 30th, this Thursday, and run through Saturday, December 2nd. Again, this is at City Space in East Hampton. Is a true story. It is you, your story. You co-wrote the play. Yes. Tell us what the play itself is. What's the story that we see on stage with you? So we see um, some flashbacks to 1985. I have uh, original footage from the Passion play. Um, so that's incorporated. There's video, there's projection, there's uh, incorporated in the play. Um, and I, pay, I play about 12 characters. And it's the story of ultimately regaining your voice. A voice that, um, you know, was silenced, I would say. And this is an attempt to regain it. Do we find out what happened to you? And do you or do you not want to share that? Um, yes. Yeah, you find out what happened. Um, so Father Smith was part of the 2005 grand jury report. And this is the pedophile Priest, this is who the was the director priest. of the passion play that exactly. you were in as a kid. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can go and you can read that grand jury report. It's uh, 400 and some pages long. And what, what was 
reported in there is Father Smith used the Passion Play to groom his victims, and he used the the means of the within the play that was all done under the guise of this is theater, this is supposed to be real, this is supposed to be authentic. Now you're we're it's thirteen year olds. It's a he's using real whips. He's uh, forcing the kid to play Jesus to get who was me to get naked, be in a closet with him, um, pin a loincloth. I'm probably giving away a lot of the play here. Um, but yes, you, you, yeah, I have those scenes in the play. Um, there's also a lot of humor, so I don't want, you know, I, this is a, this can be a tough sell, a one person show check, um, about clergy abuse check, you know, so it, it, there's a lot of humor as well. And, that and carries a priest it. sexually abusing, uh, the child who was playing Jesus yes. in the passion play. A lot of humor in that one, Jay. Yeah, that's a that's a, a tough tagline, isn't it? It's a tough elevator uh, speech on the play, but I think, Jay, if I heard you correctly, that you play twelve different characters in this play. Did you just say that? It's at least twelve. Yeah, I think it's twelve. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, say more about that. Well, uh, some of them, you know, are family members. I play my dad. I know him pretty well. Um, it, it's, you know, the, I, I, I play a, a, a Philadelphia characters. It's variations on some Philadelphia accents. Um, and, you know, for, for me, it's posture and voice, uh, finding a psychological gesture and then making it repeatable. Um, so th- this is very public. Why did you want to do this? Well, in so after going through the victims' compensation fund and deciding to say no to their offer, um, I wrote an op-ed in 2018. I just, you know, I've, I've dabbled with writing. I did a solo show before in 2008. Uh, this was a topic in it, but it was just the seeds of this show. Um, so I wrote this op-ed, my wife helped me write it, she's a writer, she, she's an editor, she's fantastic at both, um, and so it got published in a Harrisburg newspaper, and it was about the politics, it was about the intersection of the Pennsylvania General Assembly, and what the, the grand jury reports have been recommending since 2005, which is to open a window uh, a two-year look-back window for for victims whose statute of limitations have run out. And did you sue? I can't. My statute of limitations ran out. So there's been recommendations in every single grand jury report. We're probably more familiar with the one in 2018 that Josh Shapiro did, who's now the governor. And that was the rest of the state of Pennsylvania. But uh, you, as I understand it, didn't receive any compensation from the diocese, or you eventually did? They offered in this victim. So they vic- offers make an offer through the fund. Through the fund, did, did it, you? And you didn't accept I it. I did not accept it. It's pennies on the dollar to what you would receive if the two-year look-back window opens up. And people, and not only is it pennies on the dollar, it also brings the the priests, the the predators, 
to, to Father Smith is out there somewhere. All these priests in in Pennsylvania, Philadelphia are out there because statute of limitation, unless they're dead, statute of limitations have, have run. run. And so, as of today, have you received a penny? I've received therapy. We are speaking with Jay Sefton, his one-person play. And let me note this. The director of this play is the uh, uh, person who is the co-artistic director at the Chester Theater. This is a professional production. This is at City Space in East Hampton. The title of the play is Unreconciled. James Barry is the co-artistic director of the Chester Theater and the director of this play, The True Story of Jay Sefton, the adolescent actor cast as Jesus in the school play. Well, victimized by the priest. We'll be right back. God ain't known no greater sinner. I have come in search of Jesus, hoping he will understand. If I give my soul, will he clean these clothes I'm wearing? If I give my soul, will he put new boots on my feet? You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley. Playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits. Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. Where is your pain? In your knees, hips, your back? Don't let it sideline you any longer, and don't let them tell you surgery is your only option. Call QC Kinetics now. QC Kinetics is the nation's leader in regenerative medicine, restoring and repairing damaged joint tissue the natural way, using healing properties from your own body to bring you lasting relief with no drugs and no downtime. QC Kinetics is trusted by patients all over America with 150 clinics nationwide. Get started now so you can live big in 2024. Talk about a great use of your FSA and HSA. Put them to work getting you the relief you need so badly. And again, there are no drugs, no downtime, and no surgery. Call QC Kinetics today for a free consultation. Let their medical professionals give you a better path towards that pain-free life. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. Rush Doctors, short appointments. Is anyone listening? I'm Dr. Kate Atkinson, and I'm excited to announce that Atkinson Family Practice is now offering concierge medicine in addition to our main practice. An annual fee gets you access to an experienced, board-certified doctor who has fewer patients so they can devote more time to you. Atkinson Concierge Medicine. If your health concerns need more time, coordination, and advocacy, concierge might be right for you. Visit atkinsonfamilypractice.com slash concierge. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Jay Sefton, who is the star of the play that will be presented at City Stage in East Hampton, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 7 o'clock at 2 o'clock matinee as well. Tickets are available at cityspace.org. The title of this play, Unreconciled. It's the story of a survivor's journey, and as Jay has been telling us, yes, it's a serious matter. 
Priest's Sexual Abuse is serious, but the play is, and I have this on good authority in addition to Jay, has its very humorous aspects as well. Buzz, I know you have some questions for Jay. I do. Uh, Jay, I'm struck by the fact that uh, you are uh, an actor, that you are a mental health counselor, and you're a victim of sexual abuse. Now, I'm wondering, well, particularly the first two, with respect to acting and being a counselor, is there some connection that you draw between those two roles? Uh, yes, uh, definitely. I think, you know, I was just reading um, Viola Davis's uh, memoir, and she says, and it's a real short sentence, she says, um, theater is a wellspring of healing. Um, theater was the first, growing up, Irish Catholic town just outside of Philadelphia, it was... Um, I'm not, I don't want to say that kindness was hard to come by, but everybody was kind of cutting everybody else down. The first time I started doing theater, which was later, I mean, I did this play in eighth grade, and I didn't return to theater until I was 22. Um, and I remember people were genuinely kind. And you get vulnerable very quickly with one another, and there is a certain kind of healing because you're recovering your voice. And I see therapy in a very similar way. You're in kind of a, I mean, if it's individual counseling, you're sort of in a, a long-form improv with somebody where there's a safe space to get vulnerable. And um, so there's a lot of overlap uh, between the two. I am really struck by how insightful that answer was to oh. uh, the question, even a better answer than I could have conceived of, which leads, leads me to my second question, which is, Based on what you just said, why is it called re unreconciled? There is the uh, sort of straightforward answer that the program that was set up by the Archdiocese of Philadelphia was called the Independent uh, Reconciliation and Reparations Program. I don't think it was independent. I don't think it was reconciliation. And it was reparations of a sort. And I suppose it was a program. Um, so it, it didn't check all the boxes that it said. So I don't come out of it feeling reconciled. And I'm unclear if there can be reconciliation that's set up by the institution that does the, does the abusing and then also tries to dole out what they think is fair in terms of reparations and reconciliation. So there's that. And then, you know... These uh, these priests, the the institution that covered them up, that they they robbed people of of their childhood, and that's another overlap. You know, I mean, sometimes I think therapy is. I want to say it's all about being in the past, but we're going to get to the past most likely and try and recover something that that didn't go well, and we're, we're is asking for a new outcome. And I, I think um, I don't know that you can fully recover. I don't know that there's total reconciliation that can happen there. We can outgrow some of the old coping strategies. We can get better. We can learn how to deal. But for the church to call it reconciliation, that, that seems like false advertisement to me. Which brings me back to the question that we had begun to address uh, earlier, which is your motivation for the writing this play yeah. and acting in this play and being... Uh, the star of the play, um, albeit there are, of course, professional people involved, including the mm -hmm. director, the directors, and your co-writer as well. 
Um, is the motivation, the original motivation, uh, to expose the archdiocese to write something or to engage in a process that was therapeutic? I don't think that necessarily dictates in any way the end result, but I'd love to know the motivation. So when I wrote this op-ed in 2018, it got published in Harrisburg. It started to get shared uh, on online, and uh, I started to get involved with the survivor community, the SNAP, uh, sexual, the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests. Um, and some people started to reach out, and I just decided I was going to be transparent about my experience within this program, the Independent Reconciliation Program. Um, it's, we don't have enough time to go into all the ridiculous politics that have gone on in Pennsylvania of the church lobbying politicians to block legislation and legislation being brought up every single session only to get blocked again. It's been 20 years of that. And everything has felt like screaming into a void. The op-ed and actually talking with other survivors is the first time that I felt like this feels like something useful. This other thing, I, like I said, I had done a solo show before. This is what I know how to do. I, I don't know that I'm good at it, but I know how to do it. I know how to get up on stage and present a story. Um, so I'm really trying to combat the feeling of screaming into a void because that's what it has felt like in Pennsylvania every time some ridiculous bit of politics goes on to... to squash legislation that would open a two-year window, which has been always the recommendations. Last question. Did this process succeed for you? Leaving aside what the reviews of the play are, which as I've said from Patricia Lewis, I'll read that quote from her again in just a second. Did this process do for you what you might have hoped it would do? I think it goes back to Buzz's question about the overlap of therapy and theater. It's about connections. You know, we set out to do one thing and we realize that it's kind of about the connections and the people along the way and the adventure. And, you know, this experience of being here this morning is another bit of connection. And so working with Mark Basquill, talking to the other survivors along the way, writing the op-ed, working with James, uh, Patricia, sitting, putting it up in a theater, and that's the beautiful thing about theater is that's it. It's that one night and those people in that room, and that's one thing, and so that is a success. So, yes. Do I want it to continue? Yes. Do I want the laws to change in Pennsylvania? Absolutely. I don't know that this will have any effect on politicians that, you know, none of this stuff seems to have affected the ones that have accepted the lobbying money and decide they're going to block legislation no matter what. But yeah, this is a success. Every time that there's a new connection made and people feel closer to one another. I, I, I think, Jay, Jeff, you just, um, I mean, Jay, I'm sorry. That's you all right. Thanks. affected me. Oh, thanks. Jay Sefton's one-man play, Unre Unreconciled, will be at City Space in East Hampton this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at 7 o'clock, 2 o'clock matinee as well. Go to cityspace.org for your tickets. Again, Thursday through Saturday, 7 o'clock in the evening, 2 o'clock Saturday matinee. And I share with you one more time the 
email I received unsolicited from Patricia Lewis. Jay's is hands down the most extraordinary solo show I have ever seen. I hope you get a chance to see it. Jay Sefton, thanks for being with us today. Really appreciate your time, insight, and your play. Thank Thank you, Jay. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Congressman Jim McGovern is attending the second meeting of state parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that is taking place this week at the United Nations in New York. McGovern and 11 other colleagues have called on President Biden to sign the treaty that has been ratified by 69 countries, with 28 more joining them eminently. McGovern spoke Monday at the meeting about the need for the U.S. to get off the sidelines with an urgent call to action for grassroots movements to end the threat of nuclear weapons. Northampton City Council will hold the first of two listening sessions about the budget tonight from 6 to 7.30. The meeting, which will be held over Zoom, will allow residents to comment on what they think the city should prioritize in the budget for the next fiscal year. Comments for each individual will be limited to three minutes per person to ensure that all voices will be heard at the sessions. Another meeting via Zoom will be held tomorrow night at the same time. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner says low voter turnout is a factor to her re-election campaign loss to City Councilor Ginny DeSorger. People can perceive whatever they want to perceive. She received 23.8% of Greenfield's registered voters. So I don't think that's a mandate to do anything or necessarily a landslide. Wieda Gardner says she has no plans to run for any other elected office in the city and has no regrets regarding how she governed the city. A cold start to the day, and we're expecting a bit of a snow shower coming up later, a possible squall in the afternoon as high temperatures get into the low to mid-30s. Tonight's temperatures are mainly going to be in the low 20s as that snow starts to go away. We're going to have a partly cloudy evening leading up to a warm-up in the middle of the week. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Of all the boys. They're hot. Of all the boys, boys. So hot. They're the Hot Sardines, one of New York City's hottest jazz bands, and they are coming to town. About Memphis to shame, please let me explain. About Memphis to shame means that you're grand. The Hot Sardines Holiday Stomp, Thursday, December 7th at UMass. Swing into the season with the romping, rollicking sounds of the Hot Sardines. Oh, by gosh, by jingle, it's time for carols and Kris Kringle. The Hot Sardines' lighthearted and lively mix of hot jazz, swing, and stride is irresistible. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center website. The Hot Sardines Holiday Stomp, a very merry night at UMass, Thursday, December 7th in Bowker Auditorium. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials, like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. When you're going through a tough time and need to talk with a mental health care provider as soon as possible, walk into ServiceNet's clinic at 50 Pleasant Street in downtown Northampton any Wednesday between 10 and 2 
We'll see you right away. Or call ServiceNet anytime to make an appointment. Talk therapy, medication management, and other specialized treatments. ServiceNet's team works together to provide the care you need all in one place. Walk in Wednesdays 10 to 2 or call anytime. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We want you to know about play-by-play. We want you to know about the Northampton Playwrights Lab, and we want you to know about what is happening at APE Gallery. We have with us, so that you can know, uh, Talia Kingston, who is a member of the Playwrights Lab and a playwright herself, and Meryl Cohn, who is a founder of the Playwrights Lab and, of course, a playwright herself. Meryl Cohn, let's start with what the Northampton Playwrights Lab is, and then we're going to get to very, very quickly what is going to be available for us to see here in Northampton very soon. Meryl, talk to us about the Playwrights Lab. Okay, so the Playwrights Lab started in 2006, early 2006, um, and we're a group of playwrights who meet twice a month. To We bring our plays to each other. We workshop them together. And occasionally, like every couple of years, we have a public reading of our, of our work so that other people can see what we're doing. And we want to make theater affordable and accessible to people you know, to, to everyone. We keep the prices really low for that as well. Playwrights in the Valley. I'm not shocked to learn that there is such a group, <laughs> but who, who are they? Uh, are they people with other jobs, with day jobs? Are aspiring playwrights, people who have uh, uh, had accomplishments in the field? Tell us more about who you are. Um, most of the people in the group um, also teach. Not everybody, but Talia um, teaches and um, Harley Erdman teaches and Leanna James Blackwell, also Stephanie Carlson, who works primarily as an actor uh, who can be seen locally. Peter is a elementary, Peter Kennedy, elementary school teacher. Um, also Battelle Arnold. Uh, so I think that's, have I named everyone in the group? Oh, Tannis Martula, we can't forget Tannis. Um, so a lot of people have been writing in the Valley for a long time, and um, works have been seen in, uh, in various venues, including the 24-hour plays which I don't think exists anymore, but over the years. Yeah, I can't say I know most of those names, but I know Harley Erdman. He's a star. Yeah, uh, okay. I, I mean, yes. I mean I, I, and so I suspect that this group is a group of extraordinarily accomplished uh, individuals and playwrights. For our listeners who say, okay, you put on performances every couple of years, well, our, your time, our time has come. What is going to be presented where and when? So this weekend, we have our play-by-play uh, -play -play festival at the AP Gallery in downtown Northampton. And we're presenting six plays, I think, six plays. Um, basically, one every uh, evening, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and then two matinees, one on Saturday and one on Sunday. And tickets are selling super fast. So if anybody's interested, they should uh, get in quickly. Um, but basically, there's almost there's a different play almost every night. Meryl's play is happening twice because she's extraordinarily popular and <laughs> has a following. Um, but we're all uh, these are plays that have been developed over the um, really the past two years of the pandemic, and um, really audiences are getting to see them for the first time. And we get a lot of information from the audiences then about what's working and what isn't working within the play. 
Tanya Kingston, you want to tell us the titles of the plays, who they are written by, and when they are? Sure. Sure. Well, sure. great, because one of us is going to do that. I, okay. I nominate you, because you have, you have this incredible accent, which I want to ask you about, ask you about in just a second. But um, first, tell us the plays, when, when and where and by whom. Sure. So my play is starting the festival on Thursday, this Thursday at 7.30. My play is called Port of Entry. Wonderful play. Uh, thank you, Meryl. It's a play uh, set in uh, 2017 um, in about the um, so-called, what became known as the so-called Muslim ban. It's a very tension-filled, tension-filled play. Um, and um, three-character tight, three-character play. And then on Friday at 7.30 and also on Sunday at 2, Meryl's play, The Fadeaway Advantage, is playing. Well, when um, we should stop and ask Meryl yes. about her play. Okay. Can I give you my two-sentence synopsis? I would appreciate that. Okay. A writer and her lifelong best friend meet at a Provincetown Airbnb to discuss an emergency plan they made long ago. But which plan is it? The plan to live together for the rest of their lives or the plan that would separate them forever? And then the tagline is, how far would you go to keep a promise to a friend? Whoa, that's good. You can write. Hey, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> that was really good. Really made me want to see that play. Wow. Okay, let, let's, let's continue. We'll get back to the plays. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the next one on Saturday, The Building? Saturday. The Building by Battelle Arnold is an extraordinary play. It's a two-act, really full play about a building in New York, um, so semi-autobiographical. Um, the synopsis is, step into the world of the building where trouble looms and secrets hide. Um, it's, uh, it's a part of, it, Battelle is uh, Dominican-American, and it's uh, very much seeped in that community. And um, tells a sort of a love story and a story about um, all the different families that inhabit that building. I highly recommend it. Yes. Um, and then that, uh, that evening on Saturday, uh, Peter Kennedy's play Haunted Houses is uh, happening, which is a, also a fabulous play. I'm very biased. These are my collaborators and friends. But uh, Peter's play is um, the... The synopsis is, what is the true nature of a ghost? What does it mean to be haunted? It's set in 1978 during the Vietnam era um, when a New Yorker journalist is investigating reports of paranormal activity at a small inn uh, in upstate New York. And it's uh, based on some historical um, sightings, but really like Peter's imagination is um, incredible. And it really takes you inside what does it mean to have ghosts in a house and what kind of ghosts are there. Wow. Yeah. And oh, then there's yes, two that, more. Should I keep going? Please. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, we've already talked about um, the Fadeaway Advantage Merrill's play, which happens again on uh, Sunday at 2. And then our final play on Sunday at 7 is a two-hander, is, is two plays in one. Hedges by Stephanie Carlson is really what we used to call a curtain opener. It's a, a short play. Um, that is uh, based on local history, actually. A 10-minute play about a noteworthy Northampton couple. I don't think Stephanie wa wants us to give away what that couple is, but... Oh, that's a great teaser. A noteworthy Northampton couple. Right. Wow. <laughs> that now I know what I'm going to be thinking about for the next 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and, then, and then that opens Harley Erdman's play, The Birds, The Birds, The Birds, which is a wacky... Um, 
musical and um, an environmental play um, that um, it has original music written for it, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. Buzz? Yeah, I, I am just um, so interested, uh, Meryl and Talia, in um, what you think. Well, I have no talent to write plays, um, and I, but I love it. I love the story. What do you think your observations are about what characteristics people have your colleagues and you that brings you to playwriting? I mean, is there something that you've noticed that you have in common with each other? Well, um, I will. I saw the movie Theater Camp recently, and it really showed people who grew up feeling like lonely and weird in certain ways who became theater people. And I do think I can't characterize all playwrights this way. I could I could talk about myself. I, I, I feel like I grew up like feeling a little different than other people and I entertained myself by writing things and I have voices in my head I hear dialogue in my head I think it's really different for other people but I mean I think about characters all the time and I used to think I was going to be a psychologist and then uh, I was a Smith student I took Len Berkman's class in playwriting and I completely tore up my psych grad school uh, applications and decided that I really wanted to go to graduate school for playwriting because it's so much the same of thinking about people and how they relate and how they function and and what changes things between them and, and about relationships, but without having to sit there and listen to somebody for 50 minutes at a time, I guess. That was, uh, that's the bones of a new play. <laughs> Talia, are you lonely and weird? Definitely. <laughs> Um, I also, I, I, I definitely um, agree with what Meryl said about hearing voices. I thought everybody heard dialogue in their heads until fairly recently, like walking past people. And how, and how old are you? <laughs> Too old to think Maybe about. Maybe you shouldn't have torn up that psychology application. Meryl. But the, the whole looking at people in the street and imagining where they're going, what they're doing, what people are saying to each other, that's something that I've done my whole life, and now I have an outlet for it. So that's... Great. If it's okay to ask you both, other than playwriting, uh, Meryl Cohen and Talia Kingston, what do you do? Um, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. I'm the associate artistic director at a theater company in the Berkshires called Wham Theater. Oh, yes. We've had Wham folks on the show before. Really? Yes, we have. <laughs> uh, so I spend my day um, working there. And Meryl? Uh, so I write other things. I've written I've written nonfiction. I have a humor book that's called Do What I Say, Misbehavior's Guide to Gay and Lesbian Etiquette. And I had a, a humor, humor column for a long that's time. That's a pretty funny title. Go back to that title. Do What I Say. Do, Do What I. I Say. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty old book. It's practically an antique now. But I did have a column for a very long time, an advice column as misbehavior. <laughs> <laughs> really? And I also had like a health column. And I, so I, as most of what I've done has been writing related. Okay. And I would like to go back for a moment, if we could. You were the founder of the Playwright Lab, I believe, in Northampton. What was the inspiration for that? So I moved here from Provincetown, and I had been part of a Playwrights Lab there. And I searched around for one here, and there was nothing that existed at the time. So I decided I needed to start one. I really needed that collegial thing with reading other people's plays, having people read and respond to my plays. I was already getting my work produced in other places. But you, you do need feedback from people you trust. So originally, we had an open to all kind of thing where anybody could just show up 
and come. We had it at the library, and there was something very nice about that. Anybody who decided they wanted to try being a playwright could come. But eventually, a core group of us who were really serious about it, about doing it, producing our work, sending it out, and supporting each other, and reading each other's plays, we just decided to kind of tighten it up and make it be like a core group of people who were really serious about playwriting, and that's what it became. I have the same question for you, Natalia Kingston, and maybe you could just cover the question that I sort of suggested a few moments ago, which is, where are you from and how did you end up here? Because that accent does not sound like a Boston or Massachusetts. <laughs> I've been in Massachusetts a long time, but I moved, I'm from the north of England originally. Where? I came, I'm from Leeds. Okay. And I moved here originally. And you moved to Leeds. I didn't no. <laughs> move to Leeds. <laughs> it's very okay. different. Um, I, and I moved here originally um, as an exchange student to UMass Amherst. Um, and yeah. you've been here ever since? Pretty much, give or take, mm. yeah. Um, my kids were born in Northampton. I, everybody's grown up here. So. And how long have you been writing plays? I've been writing oh, – that's a hard question because I feel like – like I say, I've been writing them in my head my whole life. Um, I've been actually seriously putting them down on paper and showing them to other people for about seven years. Would one of you like to go through the uh, schedule of the plays and when and where they are? Could you do that for us again? Sure. You want you want to hear my Brooklyn accent? Sure. Well, sure. I don't think it can quite match that English <laughs> accent, but that's really <laughs> wonderful. But okay. sure, any accent will do. And okay, Talia's play uh, Port of Entry is going to be Thursday, November thirtieth at seven thirty, and like all the other plays, it's going to be at APE Gallery downtown, which is one twenty six Main Street. And people get, can buy tickets when and where. People can buy tickets from our uh, web address which is, do you have it here? Oh, there it is. Okay. So you might want to pen for this. It's theticketing.co backslash the letter O backslash NPL for Northampton Playwrights Lab 23. We're going to find some way in a moment to make that easier for people to get to. Actually, Let's... I just went to Northampton uh, Playwrights Lab and it, it'll take you to there if you... We don't have work. a web page, though. Oh, for well, North I found Hampton something. Maybe it was an article. Yeah, I, I don't think we have a, a web page. That, that, we, we, okay. we really need to get on that. Yeah. Okay. Let's go through the, the schedule, please. Okay, so um, next after that is uh, on Friday night, The Fadeaway Advantage, written by me, Meryl Cohn. That's Friday, December 1st at 7.30, and it's also Sunday, December 3rd at 2. Um, on Saturday... At 2, the matinee is The Building, written by Battelle Arnold. Um, on Saturday in the evening at 7.30 p.m., that's December 2nd, is Haunted Houses, written by Peter Kennedy. And on Sunday is the second reading of The Fadeaway Advantage. That's my play at 2. And on Sunday night are two plays. That's Hedges, written by Stephanie Carlson. That's a short play. And The Birds, The Birds, The Birds, written by Harley Erdman. And the two of them are presented together at, on Sunday evening at 7 p.m. And all of these plays are, will be read at um, the APE Gallery at 126 Main Street in downtown Northampton. We'll be back with more with the Playwrights Lab right after this.
the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Maybe you still have your copy of a favorite long-ago book, like I do, about Mickey Mantle, signed by my Uncle Bill, Hanukkah, 1958. A book can make a lasting impression. Something Someday is the new picture book by the presidential inaugural poet Amanda Gorman. Get it at Broadside Bookshop. For middle grade and elementary readers, Percy Jackson and the Olympians, The Chalice of the Gods. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered anywhere or pick it up at the store, then browse a bit. Broadside, Northampton's independent bookshop. Hi, I'm Joanne Fink, and I'm supporting Cooley Dickinson, my community hospital, on Giving Tuesday, and I hope you will too. Fundraising proceeds benefit the Transforming Emergency Care Campaign for the Cooley Dickinson Hospital Emergency Department. Right now, every new cash donation made to the emergency department will be matched by 50% up to $1 million, thanks to the Harold Grinspoon Charitable Foundation. To give, visit CooleyDickinson.org slash give now. It's time to get ready for all sorts of winter fun with the annual Northampton Lions Club Ski and Skate Sale, December 2nd from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Smith Vocational High School. There will be all sorts of new and used gear that will be available, including alpine and cross-country skis and boots, ice skates, snowshoes, poles, and much more, all to benefit the Northampton Lions Club. The Northampton Lions Club Ski and Skate Sale, December 2nd from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. at Smith Vocational High School. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Meryl Cohn, who's the founder of the Playwrights Lab, and Talia Kingston, a member and a playwright. So, Buzz, during our time away, you checked out how you were going to buy your tickets. How do you get the tickets? And here's how you get the tickets. You could either put in A, period, P, period, E, period, and that brings you to... AP Gallery, and right there are tickets for this, uh, the, the wonderful Playwrights Lab performances, or put in Ape Arts, A-P-E-A-R-T-S. It'll bring you to the same place, and you'll be able to get tickets. Let me turn back uh, to Taya Kingston. Share with us, if you would, please, Taya, who are the artists who are involved? Who are the individuals in the performances? Yeah, we're very lucky. We're uh, not only are these plays homegrown, um, all written in the valley in Northampton, but also we ha- we're going to feature around over thirty local professional artists, um, actors, directors, technicians um, in these plays. So it's a really great opportunity to see local talents um, on stage reading these plays. And readings, I always feel like um, it's like the kind of storytelling you get as a child where somebody's actually telling you the story right in front of you. You really get a feeling there's no masking with costumes or scenic or there's some lighting, but um, you really get a chance to hear the story be read directly at you and they are seeing you receive it. So it's a really beautiful live experience. Is it hard for you as the playwright to see others interpret your play right in front of you in real time, very, very close, because this is a very 
a cozy <laughs> and an intimate space. It's hard, but I love it. That's what we write for. We write. We're collaborative artists. We write for other people to read our words, right? And it's true. Uh, people always add a layer that's unexpected. And the reactions, you sit there and go, oh, my God, they, they laughed or they cried or, <laughs> or they said, oh, I mean, do, do you wait for those moments? Yes. Uh, we live for those moments. <laughs> well, Meryl says, do what I say. <laughs> <laughs> and, again, the productions start when and run through when? Thursday through Sunday of this weekend. Please come and join us at the APE Gallery. We want to thank uh, Meryl Cohn, founder of the Playwright Lab, and Playwrights Lab, and Talia Kingston. Thank you both so very much. Congratulations on this performance. We encourage our listeners, you want to see at least one and probably more of these plays. Break a leg. Thank you both so very much. Thank you. Even though temperatures are dropping, local food never stops. Across Massachusetts, winter farmers markets are popping up, showcasing the finest handmade products and fresh produce from local farmers and small businesses. Eat local this season and experience the magic of supporting your local community. This message is sponsored by Mass Farmers Markets, a nonprofit passionately championing farmers markets across the state. Join us to eat local year-round at massfarmersmarkets.org. Whatever the season, something fun is happening at the Hitchcock Center for the Environment. From home energy efficiency workshops to birding classes and nature walks, we have hands-on activities happening all year long. Whether you're 2 or 92, the Hitchcock Center has an opportunity for you to connect with our natural world. Come visit us at our new location, the Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street in Amherst. For more information, visit HitchcockCenter.org. WHMP Northampton. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And uh, we are always blessed. Uh, this is a monthly segment that we have about, um, well, about fair play. It's with uh, Society for Baseball uh, research uh, researcher and author and scholar, Duke Goldman. Welcome. Thank you, Buzz. So, what's on your mind today, Duke? Well, change has come to the National Football League. Right, and it's a change that a lot of people here in New England are not terribly happy about. What I am I talking about? I just heard a collective groan. Yeah, um, the New England Patriots have a record of two wins and nine losses. Even though I don't follow football anymore, I can't help but notice that. Right, and everybody's calling for Bill Belichick's scalp, so to speak. And um, you know, the Patriot reign—I think almost everybody would agree—is over. Wow. We are all forced to just uh, recognize, you know what, recognize how much fun it was for people who were Patriots fans for so long. Right. And, you know, they're not going to recover anytime soon. Um, but what it speaks to is 
you know, even that I'm thinking about is that even in 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 the reality of there being a dynasty in football, that you could say the Patriots were a dynasty. I, I lose track. Did they win five Super Bowls? Six Super Bowls? I, I mean, they won a whole bunch of Super Bowls. They were in several more, right? Um, they have been the most dominant team in football. But um, football has a lot more competitive balance, I would argue, than a lot of the other uh, professional sports, particularly baseball. And, you know, part of that competitive balance is that the football owners came to a decision in the 1960s, and that is that they would have an element of socialism in their business model. And the socialism was that they were going to have a national TV contract that they were going to share equally. And that that national TV contract would be most, if not all, of their broadcast revenues. Now, this doesn't mean there isn't an element of in- income inequality in football. Certainly, some of the franchises have get more money from from local income, having to do with their their uh, what they're charging for seats and and luxury box costs, and you know all sorts of ancillary income that exists. But football fundamentally became in many ways a national sport by virtue of this. And if there's one thing that I'm very much aware of as a baseball fan, one of the reasons I think football is so much more prominent in American society is that ironically, because baseball was once the national game, football is now the national game. And people watch one day a week for the 17 weeks now of the regular season, they usually see their home team, but also five other teams. And people are interested in all the football games. I, if you ask most football fans, they're really interested. Whoever's playing, if Tampa is playing against um, New England, they, they care, but they also care if it's L.A., San Diego. Whereas most baseball fans, they're not really interested when um, the Texas Rangers are playing the Arizona Diamondbacks. They don't care. Football has, partly because of that balance, a, a national interest that helps them stay prominent. But in terms of income inequality about, among the clubs is what you're talking about, but I'm always focused, and I think many people are focused, kind of obsessed with the Aaron Rodgers contract, three years for $50 million a year, or Russ and Wilson, or in baseball, you know, the, the whoever a $300 million contract. That leads to inequality, doesn't it? Sure, it does. That's another version of inequality we have. And, you know, we accept the idea that prominent athletes are going to be paid the most. And, you know, we have this in all sectors of American society, right? The CEOs get paid a lot more than the average worker. Well, you know, Aaron Rodgers gets paid a lot more than, you know, the... The uh, The guy uh, who's protecting him. Yes, the lineman who comes in for occasional plays. This is Dan. I have a question for you. Uh, a lot of money uh, in football is now moving away from television to streaming online. And I'm curious to know how you think that will cause or exacerbate inequality uh, among the teams. Like, will the revenue go to the teams that are most watched relative to other teams? You know, that's a good question. I, I'm, I'm not really sure how football is sharing its, its streaming revenue. My guess would be that they are also 
more oriented towards an, an even-handed approach to that and that they would be sharing that income closer to evenly, but I don't know that for a fact. If it does lend itself to more disparity, that may create more competitive inequality going forward, and then that's something they would have to revisit. I have a different kind of question about this for you, Duke Goldman, and it's about community, something I know you think and write and care a lot about. And what football does in this odd way is it creates community. On Monday morning, there is a lot of football talk throughout this region, throughout the country. It brings people together in this odd way. And I'm wondering what your impression is. You started today by talking about the New England Patriots, and I'm wondering whether fan loyalty to a team is based upon winning or whether there is something far more important than that, a la the Chicago Cubs, who lost for years and years and decades and decades, and the fans still turned out. What's your view of that phenomenon? So I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's an important phenomenon, uh, a complicated phenomenon. Fan loyalty obviously matters a great deal. Um, and most of us think of ourselves as loyal fans uh, for the teams that we root for. I think here you have a really interesting contrast between professional and college sports. Um, yes, uh, Red Sox fans will always root for the Red Sox. They're not going to say, you know, oh, the Red Sox have had a bad year. I think I'll root for the Yankees this year. But they may not buy a ticket and Correct. go to the game. Correct. On the other hand, my wife's family has had Providence College basketball tickets for 50 years, and no matter how good the team was, they'd still go out. Right, and that's one of the advantages college sports has is this this loyalty to to their alma mater, to their community, right? And loyalty is an interesting aspect to all of this, all of these questions. So, Dan, again with another question: Do you think there's loyalty to a team, or is there loyalty to a player on that team? Because I, I can tell from the people I talk to about the sports I follow, mainly British soccer, like I love one team, Arsenal. Okay, but most other people I talk to about soccer, they actually are following specific players, Messi, Ronaldo, all those big names. And then it's I feel like it's the same thing for football. It's the Tom Brady's people loved. I mean, that's that's what was the draw. Right. And I'm curious to know what you think about well, that. I just want to augment the question before you answer it, Duke, which is, or is it the region? That is, if we had the New England blah, blah, blahs, we might be loyal to that. I think it's all of those things, you know? It's a complicated, complex reality for all of us. Who do we really root for? Do we love particular players? Absolutely. In all sports, people get invested. You know, my, my favorite athletes to this day are Walt Frazier, Dave DeVusher, Willis Reed, Bill Bradley, Dick Barnett, and Earl Monroe in the early 1970s New York Knicks. Um, they will always be my favorite players. Can you do that backwards and <laughs> the reverse in alphabetical, alphabetical order? order. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> Field sobriety test. Yeah, I mean, so there is that element. But on the other hand, as Jerry Seinfeld famously said, we root for laundry, right? We, we, we root for the fabric of the team that has a logo and, you know— you know, players come and go and we still wake up that the next year and say, I'm rooting for who are the Mets going to have in 2024? I'm going to root for them. You know, so also to follow up on maybe a related issue here is it's tough to follow a team. Like, let's just say in baseball, like the Kansas City Royals. I, I don't I've never been to Kansas City. 
It's the Kansas City Royals. It's like the Cincinnati Reds. It's like I rather follow the Yankees and just want to see them lose versus following the you know Kansas City Royals and Cincinnati Reds. And I think that connects back to your topic about inequality. It's like I can't ever see those big markets, those small market teams ever taking a shot. I mean, you know, there's an example with the Rays, the Tampa Bay Rays, but like the Brewers, the Cincinnati Reds, I mean, just come on. Like you really gotta follow that. No. If they get if they get to the World Series, I still wouldn't follow. It doesn't matter. It's just I can never get really excited about it. Well, those teams most of the time are not going to have national followings, but yeah. they are going to have local, local followings. followings. And, but and that limits revenue, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And so then they're, they're struggling. And baseball made a decision a long time ago not to really go deep into finding ways to create more balance. They decided to limit the amounts of revenue sharing. They decided they would not create a salary floor requiring teams to have um, a certain sized payroll, which may sound, you know, the opposite. You might say, well, why would a salary floor help with balance? Well, if there was a salary floor, all teams would have to have a certain level of, of salary. So they would be forced to be a little more competitive. And it would also lead to more uh, uh, revenue sharing. It has to go hand in hand. So you probably would have more of equality of team strength. And, and that actually makes it for a more exciting game, right? Like if you had, if, if I could think about the Brewers or other teams, even though they're small market, they could take on some of the bigger name teams. That's actually more exciting, right? Well, let me ask you, Duke Goldman, my, this may be dated. Uh, I'm sure it's dated. But it used to be that the difference between the major sports leagues was in football, for away games, there was a 60-40 split. The home team would get 60, the away team would get 40, and that generated more likely parity uh, because of that revenue split. Then it was the merch that the home team, everybody sold their own merch and made money. The league took a part of that. In baseball, it was 80-20. They were unwilling to share with the small market teams when the small market teams were in New York, New York kept 80% rather than sharing uh, that with the Milwaukee team. I'm not sure what the... I know football is still 60-40. I'm not sure what the baseball share is now. I and think by you're the way, right that it's... basketball, I think, was one-third, two-thirds, I think. Each sport has its own, you know, calculus about that. And yeah, it makes a difference. The numbers do matter. Um, you know, again, what I see w with baseball is an unwillingness to try to level the playing field. But there's another question that comes up, which is when you have more of a level playing field, is the sport as exciting? If you don't have dominant teams in the league, and I'm going to go way back to the year 1959. In 1959, you had the most equality that there ever was in baseball. And the Los Angeles Dodgers and Chicago White Sox both won barely over 90 games, won their leagues. There were the, All the teams were pretty close to 500, and it was one of the most boring years that baseball has ever had and a rather dull World Series. Um, I think we like seeing dominant teams play, even if it's not our team. I, I don't like the Atlanta Braves, but I loved watching them play this year. They had outstanding offense. And they were just dominant, and I found that very interesting. Now, baseball's response to what exists today, which is inequality such that you have a lot of dominant teams, you had 300-win 
teams this year, and they've had for years now teams winning 45, 50 games who are winning barely over a third of their games, terrible teams and great teams. How do they, they think they're improving the product by adding playoff teams? And then we end up with the result that the more playoff rounds you have, the more likelihood you're going to end up with two teams like Texas and Arizona that most of us don't really care about. And then people don't watch. I just love this conversation. We are going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk about, well, uh, team favorites, um, income inequality among teams, and uh, all kinds of fair play with Duke Goldman right after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Have you heard about concierge medicine? It's a different way to do healthcare. A complete wellness package, which includes greater access to your doctor and more personalized care for an annual membership fee. Hi, I'm Dr. Kate Atkinson. I'm proud of the excellent care that Atkinson Family Practice has provided for 15 years and counting. In addition to our main practice, we're excited to begin offering concierge medicine. Is concierge right for you? Learn more at atkinsonfamilypractice.com concierge. Do you think the Amish sleep in horse-drawn beds? Whatever beds they sleep in, the Amish build beds that are simply beautiful with subtle arts and crafts touches. There's an old Amish proverb, the most important things in your home are people. Maybe so, but those people need a place to sleep. Amish-made beds from Talon Furniture. So good looking, so well built. Talon has Amish beds ready for delivery or order in the wood and finish you want. Then, we have beds made in Vermont that have all of the craftsmanship of Amish beds, made from cherry or maple, but these Vermont-built beds are just a touch more elegant in their design. How about an upholstered bed? An upholstered headboard and frame. It's a really nice look and feel. Allen Furniture's upholstered beds come in dozens of fabrics and leathers. In between today and tomorrow, there will be time in bed. Spending that time in a nice bed just feels good. Come to Talon Furniture little bed boutique just down the hill from Amherst College. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with our extraordinary resource on all matters of sports and social justice, Duke Goldman. We are talking about team revenue sharing. So, you know, I think one of the questions in New England, um, as we sit here today watching the Patriots crash and burn, is um, if the Patriots continue to do poorly, and there's every reason to think that they're not going to resurrect and turn it around this year or next year, or maybe not even the year after that, how is it going to impact the, the fan base, the, the team, its revenue, the interest level, etc.? And in that regard, Duke, what I'd like to know is your perspective on whether this will just cause more fan griping, or will it will cause people to stay away and we won't see Gillette Stadium packed seat to seat by seat every game you know my guess is the 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 fan base is going to stay pretty loyal part of that is you know 
they're 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 still feeling like they've been rewarded tremendously by the Patriots winning. And if they were to abandon this team after twenty plus years of phenomenal play, as soon as they have a downturn, um, that they I think that would you know internally that would probably bother a lot of people. Will there be people who stop coming? Will they see some marginal amount of reduction in interest? I would guess, but I I bet they're still going to have pretty strong interest now. Ask me again five years from now if the Patriots, you know, stink then. I don't know about that. I don't know how long it would last. But I, I don't think we're going to see an immediate turnaround in interest. I, I'd like to stay with this question of loyalty for a minute, if we might. Will the ownership, will Kraft stay with Belichick and reward him for the years of success? Or does a year or two or three or four now of lack of success spell his doom as the head coach? My guess is, you know, 24 years is a long, long time to coach one franchise. And Belichick is around 70 years old, and the team is terrible this year, and there's just a real sense that his, his time has run out. I, I don't know. I, I would think that he'll wait till the end of the year. I, would, I can't see them firing Belichick in, you know, next week or something. But if the Patriots end up where they look like they're going to end up, you know, something like, you know, four and 13, I think at the end of the year, there will be a parting of the ways. Bill, that let me throw the question guess. back at you. Do you think that somebody other than Belichick could do a better job rebuilding the Patriots than a Bill Belichick? Well, as we were discussing before in the stands, there are 50,000 people and 50,000 people think they could coach the team and have a really good idea of what to do and what the problem is and how they would solve it. So do I have an idea? I'm going to say nothing better than Bill Belichick, who's been doing this for his entire life and who was known as a defensive genius uh, before he came to the New England Patriots. This Dan, I'd like to just add, I think they just need to figure out their quarterback situation. It all starts with the quarterback. If you can just get a decent quarterback in there and start building some pieces around him, they'll be okay. They might not be dominant like they were, you know, from 2002 to 2019, but I think that's where it's got to start. Mac Jones is whatever's done to him or whatever issues he's having. He just needs to go to another team. And they need to rebuild. It's another rebuilding thread. The question is, is he the right person to rebuild the team? And I think the answer for that is, given what he's given to the team, they're probably going to stay loyal. That's the, my guess. Well, the problem with Belichick, and I think this distinguishes his situation from a lot of coaches, is he also acts as the general manager. He makes the draft choice decisions. He makes the trade decisions. It's This is Belichick's team. And when people don't perform, when draft choices and don't work out when players they've traded for turn out to be a bust. It's all on him. He owned it when it worked, and he owns it when it fails. So there is the possibility of them bringing in a new director of football operations and keeping him as the coach. Would he go along with that? I don't know. He may decide he wants, you know, somebody else would definitely hire him. There, there may be a conversation they have, and perhaps, you know, Kraft will offer him some, something like that. And he might say no, and he might say, I want to go somewhere else where I have a, a chance. Or he might say, you know, I'm, I'm, I think he's 70, you know, you know, enough. I've done enough. I, I don't see him continuing in, in the 
in the position he's in now as the mastermind of the entire yeah, franchise. Yeah, you know, 70, if I may add. It's a young, he's still young guy. Thank you, Dan. Well, I'm just saying, we have a president who's 81. Hey, we only and, gave and, Dan and 200 bucks for this. Come hey, on, we're just going to run just out saying, soon. It sounds like 70, like he can't coach. Maybe he just wants to retire. That's one thing. But, you know, if we have a president who's 81 years old, who might be 84, 85 as president, I, I think somebody who's 75 can still coach especially someone with that talent. Marv Levy, who coached the Buffalo Bills to four successive uh, And unsuccessful Super appearance. Bowls. Yeah, but leave that. <laughs> yeah, but that People that, in Buffalo are never going to forget that. They may not, but they, he got them to the Super Bowl four times, which is in a, in a row. It's an extraordinary accomplishment. And he retired after those... Uh, failures in the Super Bowl that you alluded to. As the headline said on the day of his retirement, marvelous. That said, <laughs> in a recent interview that I read the transcript of from, from Marv Levy, he said, and he was in his 70s, I retired too soon, I regretted it. Well, they may want to continue, and, and Belichick may want to continue. I, I disagree with Dan. I, I, I'm, you know, time will tell. I You're think get punished that, for that. Yeah, I think that Belichick's reign is coming to an end. And, and, and I think, you know, talk about loyal fan base. You know, the loyal fan base is going to feel like, and you're hearing it more and more, they want, they want him out. They, they think his run is ended. And, you know, sometimes there is a need for a younger person to come in. And, Although, you know, as Dan points out, not his fault. If Mac Jones, the quarterback, had played the way people felt, Belichick felt, and the fan base felt, he was going to perform. He was believed he was going to be great. And if he were great, instead of, well, how to put this, mediocre at best, probably kind of lousy in reality, in truth, um, the Patriots would have a winning record. And, and the, Belichick wouldn't be in this position. And the rumor was, when Mac was chosen, that it wasn't Belichick's choice, that it was imposed upon him by the higher-ups. That's what I was hearing and reading. Again, I don't have any sources to back that up. So I, I kind of feel a little bit for the guy. Now, if it's his time, it's his time. I just think, let me see what he does when more go around. Well, I just want to bring the conversation back to this loyalty issue and... Away from, I mean, if we're talking about fan loyalty, was there ever, you, you mentioned the Chicago Cubs who were winless for so long. There were 84 years that the Boston Red Sox didn't win, and yet they packed Fenway Park. They it was a didn't park. always pack it. They didn't pack it in the 50s and 60s. After 1967, when the Red Sox went from ninth to first place, after that, the fan base came back. And the Chicago Cubs, for years, were drawing only so well. And it, it, the, the, the general image was people love going out because it's Wrigley Field, and a lot of them are not that big, you know, loyal, hard, you know, hardcore loyal like Cubs Like Fenway fans. Park. Yeah. So... And then there's the story of Connie Mack's Philadelphia A's, who uh, in, in the late 20s and early 30s, he was in the World Series three years in a row, owner and manager, and he realized fans got bored with the team winning, actually, and attendance was dropping, and he ended up selling off all of his players. So, you know, it's a very complicated world we're looking at it when it comes to the reality of, of sports and sports competition. I think the ownerships in all these sports have to think, well, what are they going to do going forward to try to keep it interesting? And I think baseball has a lot of work to do. Is it a balance between uh, money 
and winning. I mean, I always think like some just want to sell jerseys and make money and they don't really care if they're winning. And I, I think the problem is that's, yeah, that's where they're at. They care about making money now and not about the health of the sport in the future. Well, um, I'm so sorry we have to leave this conversation. I'm loving this conversation, but Duke Goldman, as always, researcher extraordinaire and baseball historian extraordinaire. And just thank you so much for being with us uh, twice a month, once on Inside Baseball, and once, here we are, uh, at Fair Play. So thank you, Duke. My pleasure. We're going to be right back with U.S. District Judge uh, Michael Ponzer. There's a wonderful student essay contest that is going on, and we'll be talking about it right after this. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Congressman Jim McGovern is attending the second meeting of state parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons that is taking place this week at the United Nations in New York. McGovern and 11 other colleagues have called on President Biden to sign the treaty that has been ratified by 69 countries, with 28 more joining them eminently. McGovern spoke Monday at the meeting about the need for the U.S. to get off the sidelines with an urgent call to action for grassroots movements to end the threat of nuclear weapons. Northampton City Council will hold the first of two listening sessions about the budget tonight from 6 to 7.30. The meeting, which will be held over Zoom, will allow residents to comment on what they think the city should prioritize in the budget for the next fiscal year. Comments for each individual will be limited to three minutes per person to ensure that all voices will be heard at the sessions. Another meeting via Zoom will be held tomorrow night at the same time. Greenfield Mayor Roxanne Wiedegardner says low voter turnout is a factor to her re-election campaign loss to City Councilor Ginny DeSorger. People can perceive whatever they want to perceive. She received 23.8% of Greenfield's registered voters. So I don't think that's a mandate to do anything or necessarily a landslide. Wieda Gardner says she has no plans to run for any other elected office in the city and has no regrets regarding how she governed the city. A cold start to the day, and we're expecting a bit of a snow shower coming up later, a possible squall in the afternoon as high temperatures get into the low to mid-30s. Tonight's temperatures are mainly going to be in the low 20s as that snow starts to go away. We're going to have a partly cloudy evening leading up to a warm-up in the middle of the week. I'm Jack Wood with the 22 News Storm Team on 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Every child has a spark that's waiting to be ignited, that deserves to be ignited. At the Bement School, we know each student's story. We know them as individuals. Kids at Bement understand that academic success is an important part of who they are. Not the only part, but an important part. Their teachers guide them on that quest, individually and as a group, fostering a sense of responsibility for learning. The Bement School serves students in kindergarten through ninth grade. It's a close-knit community of students from Western Mass, from other parts of the country, and other parts of the world. Forming bonds with students whose households and cultures are different gives them a broad perspective on the world, even at this young age. As much as academic success is important at Bement, so too is how students learn to live Bement's core values, compassion, integrity, resilience, and respect at school and in their communities. Take a closer look at Bement. Contact me, Kim Lachlan, Director of Admission, or visit our website, bement.org. 
What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. The co-op's kitchen is always stirring things up. Get ready to go meals, sandwiches, salads, pizza, burritos. Get help with holiday parties and dinners. Let's bake. The co-op has all your baking essentials like ground up, flour and grains, stone milled in Holyoke. Put a little lovin' in the oven. Breads and brownies, cookies and cake. Let your creative inspiration flow. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Welcome back to Talk the Talk. We are so pleased to have with us Federal District Court Judge Michael Ponzer, who has been the U.S. District Court Judge here in Western Massachusetts since 1994. He assumed senior status. We'll ask him about that in 2011. Michael Ponzer graduated Harvard. I mean, he's, how to put this, a bit of an overachiever. Graduated Harvard. He was a Rhodes Scholar in Oxford. Went to Yale, got his uh, Juris Doctor, that's his law degree, 1975 from Yale, became a U.S. Magistrate in 1984. And I think most importantly for him, the author of best-selling novel, The Hanging Judge, and author as well of the second novel, The One-Eyed Judge, and he has a third novel I know he's working on, which will come out next year. Mike Ponzer, thank you so much for being back on the show. I'm feeling so small, Bill. <laughs> just, just, just for the record, I'm, I'm smaller than either of you. So, uh, uh, so it's great to be here. Uh, Bill, you and I have known each other since Dinosaurs Walked the Earth, and uh, it's always... Always a pleasure to see you again. This is a great show. Well, thank you so very much. I should note for uh, you, our listeners, that uh, I managed to send uh, Judge Ponzer an email, a private email, about us being on the show, and sent it talking about diners, dinosaurs to an AOL address, <laughs> which, which surprisingly actually kind of sort of worked. Yeah. I, I should also note that uh, uh, for the first job I was applying for after law school, uh, it was with the distinguished uh, criminal defense lawyer in Boston, uh, and I really wanted this job. And this lawyer said to me, I would give you the job, but there's one other candidate I'm looking at, and his name is Michael Ponzer, and if he wants the job, he's going to get it. And Michael I've Pon never <laughs> forgiven myself for that. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. This was Bill Homans, who was a distinguished member of the bar. A that was the beginning of Bill Newman's descent into mediocrity. Oh, brilliant, true. Bill Homans, brilliant criminal defense and civil rights attorney, famous in Massachusetts for winning the case against the death penalty. But, well, talk about terrific things that, uh, that, that can happen as a result of our interest in the law. There is, on December 15th of uh, 1791, ratification was completed by the 13th states um, to ratify the Bill of Rights. The uh, ten, first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution 
to celebrate that, we call um, December the Bill of Rights Month. And to celebrate that, the Massachusetts chapter of the Federal Bar Association, together with the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts and Discovering Justice, um, they sponsor an essay contest, a student essay contest in which high school students can uh, write an essay and compete for cash prizes. First place is $500, second place is $300, and third place is $200. Uh, District Judge Ponser, I know that you have a real commitment to young people learning more about our law, our constitutional framework. So why don't you share our thoughts, your thoughts on this essay contest? Uh, I'm really delighted uh, about it, uh, both the contest generally and the specific contest this year, which I think is particularly interesting. Uh, the uh, contest uh, uh, contemplates students submitting their essays by January 31st, a maximum of 550 words, about two pages, double-spaced. Uh, and the topic is, uh, for me, uh, fascinating what... Uh, I'm trying to quote it. If you could add an amendment to the Bill of Rights, what right would uh, it protect and why? I don't know who thought that up as a topic, but I think it's brilliant. Uh, it's brilliant to me because it's it sort of rests on the pivot point of our legal system, which is we have much to be proud of about our legal system, uh, its struggles, uh, quite a bit, and we are a work in progress. Uh, we are continually evolving towards the ideals that the Constitution and the Bill of Rights try to articulate. So it, it, it encourages people who are interested in the contest to think about our legal system and also think about ways and recognize that there are many ways in which it can be improved. And I think that's just a, a fantastic way to approach uh, this uh, celebration of the Bill of Rights. So I love it. I love it too, Judge Ponser. And, and another reason why I love it is because it gets young people to think about what is a right, oh. to distinguish what a right is from other privileges that we enjoy in our society. And I think that's a way to really rivet it. What's so important that we should codify it as an amendment to the Constitution? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's a very good point. Judge Ponser, I do want to know who the essay contest is open to and how they apply. First, I'd like to ask you, Judge, who are the judges? Well, I, what it, not me to begin <laughs> with. I'm not on that. But it says here a committee of federal judges and Federal Bar Association board members will decide on the top three essays submitted. I don't know who the, those people are. It's going to be one of the, uh, at least one of the district court judges uh, currently uh, active on our court, but I do not know who that is. Uh, I don't know that anybody knows who that is yet. He, he or she may not have been picked. And who the FBA board members are, I don't know. But that's, those are our, that's their status. FBA, Federal Bar Association. Correct. Okay. How do kids enter? Well, there's a... Um, uh, I, I, I suggest probably the best thing to do would be to get a copy of the brochure... Uh, from Discovering Justice or from the Federal, Federal Bar Association. And that brochure has a SurveyMonkey website. Um, I know that the uh, kids in high school will have no problem using that sort of SurveyMonkey device. 
I would need uh, some. <laughs> You'd need a kid in high school. <laughs> considerable advice to uh, be able to use that tool. Um, but you can you can get a brochure uh, through uh, uh, Discovering Justice or the Federal Bar Association that give you exact instructions about how to use a survey monkey and how to submit your essay. And I just want to add that not only are those cash prizes, once again, third place, $200, second place, $300, and first place, $500 for these students, but these there are prizes for honorable mentions, which are going to be awarded as well. And the essays are going to be published on the United States District Court for the District of Massachusetts website. Right. And in both the Federal Bar Association for Massachusetts website and Discovering Justice newsletter. It's really very powerful. And yeah. this is open to all high school students in Massachusetts? Yes. And I want to clarify that. I uh, have seen what I think was an earlier draft of the uh, brochure or handout for the contest, which says uh, that is open to uh, students residing in Boston, Worcester, and Springfield. That is incorrect, and I just clarified that this morning. It is open to all students, wherever they live, within the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, who are attending high school in grades 9 through 12. So that's freshmen through seniors, all students in Massachusetts may submit their entries. Well, I want to take this opportunity. I'm here in studio with a couple of constitutional scholars and practitioners, and I want to ask, I'm going to start with you, District Judge Ponzer, what amendment would you add to the Bill of Rights if you had a choice? Well, I think one of the most interesting uh, conversations we're having nationally right now is about uh, the issue of firearms, and the Supreme Court has uh, closed some doors to that discussion through originally through a decision called Heller, uh, in which they uh, uh, restricted uh, the rights of communities uh, to discuss uh, restrictions on fire use and possession of firearms. And uh, I, I know that uh, many people were uh, disagreed with that uh, opinion. Uh, certainly, uh, the history of jurisprudence related to the Second Amendment uh, was. Uh, in many ways, uh, uh, contrary to that opinion, the decision was 5-4. There was a brilliant dissent by Justice Stevens. Uh, the majority was written by Justice Scalia. And uh, I would like to see more conversation about that particular decision, uh, which I think uh, is uh, somewhat problematic. How about you, Attorney Bill Newman? Well, I think the essay question itself raises another question which is what part of the Constitution would you want to amend, mm -hmm. which is not really what was asked, but mm -hmm. the question you asked, Buzz, which is, well, what additional right mm -hmm. would you like to add to the Bill of Rights? Mm -hmm. And I would say that the, the amendment that I would suggest would go towards the abolition of gerrymandering uh, and that... This is what the Supreme Court has said. I mean, I'm not asking you, Judge Ponzer, to comment on this, but what the Supreme Court said when it came to the political gerrymandering case is it's too complicated for us federal court judges. We can't figure it out. I mean, you look, we'd have to draw lines and things like that, and we can't do it, leaving us in a situation where over 90 percent of the congressional races are decided before any votes are cast, 90 percent. That's democracy, really? 
I guess there's a reason why Bill and I are co-hosts here because I, I was just showing Judge Ponzer and, and Dan Torres my note. It said I would uh, do something to uh, guarantee the – take away the right to redistrict from state legislatures and put it in the hands of independent districting commissions and furtherance of what the 15th Amendment guaranteed – the right to vote would be uh, honest. Dan Torres, you have an idea? I have like two ideas that I think are big and maybe even bigger than redistricting. Uh, I don't know. Arguably. arguably. I'm not a lawyer, right? So uh, first, I think we need to make sure if we're going to look at the Constitution that people have, American citizens have the right to vote. If I'm not mistaken, is that constitutionally protected? I mean, just to make it clear to whatever Supreme Court. Then the second one has to be money in politics. I think either way, if you're not going to ban money and say there, you can't give money to your candidates, right, then it needs to be about disclosures, the amount, who's giving to who, and all of that. And the fact that the country hasn't dealt with that, I think, just distorts Every other issue we can possibly come up, and I'm sure the students will come up with millions. And that's what I was going to ask you, Judge Ponser. So here we have four uh, older um, mm -hmm. people. Uh, but what do you think high school students and their creativity and their view, I bet you there's going to be some interesting essays. Yes, I certainly think there will be. Uh, I, I uh, imagine there will be some uh, interesting input uh, re with regard to our struggles with the First Amendment and the balance between uh, expression and uh, trashing uh, people. I was just at a conference uh, with a Harvard law professor, uh, a guy named Noah Feldman, who's pretty well known, a writer about the law, and he said he's very, very worried that students have a negative uh, opinion of the First Amendment and uh, and the right to free expression because so much damage is being done through these new tools of the internet and you can get trolled and you can have your life ruined and lies can uh, develop uh, momentum and so there is a, a lot of concern about the sort of bedrock notion of free expression and the dark side of free expression among young people who are the ones often that are getting battered uh, by uh, uh, trolling uh, and other uh, ugly uses of the uh, right to free expression. So I'll be interested in hearing if there's any of that. I'd be interested to know your suggestion. You're not a judge on this essay contest, Judge right. Bonser. Is the essay contest going to be determined, you think, in part by whether the judges tend to agree or disagree with the position taken? Won't that... or isn't it inevitable that that would influence the judge's view of the arguments proffered in this 550-word essay? Very, very good question. And my advice, uh, to the extent that it's worth anything of the student, is to make sure that you concentrate on the structure and uh, logic of the essay that you write. I think that is what's going to get you across the finish line. You've got two pages that's a very short time. You have to have a tightly structured uh, uh, essay uh, and, and a convincing essay, and I think that is going to be much more important than the substantive topic. Two pages, you got three points. There are three reasons or whatever. That, that, that's, that's how you're going you're, you're gonna to want to try for four. Eh, that's going to be tight. You've got to develop each of your points. Two might be better. So 
think structure. Structure is power. That's what I tell my students when I'm teaching them writing. Structure your essay. Think it through. Make sure your punctuation, spelling, uh, grammar, and so on are tight. And I think that is going to be a more important factor in pushing across the finish line than, than, the, than the subject. It can't be a, a nutty subject. It's got to be a, a respectable subject. But a respectable subject, compellingly presented, I think is the way to go. Well, we are going to take a break. We're talking to United <coughs> States District Judge, retired Michael Ponzer. We're talking about the Bill of Rights Month student essay contest. Please encourage kids that you know, high school kids that you know, to uh, submit an essay of 550 words. There are cash prizes and a wonderful thing for their resume, but more importantly, for their citizenship in participating in this essay contest. You can find out more about it and how to submit it by going to Bill of Rights Month Student Essay Contest. Really important thing. One of the brochures is a 2022 uh, brochure. It says that it's limited to students in Boston, Worcester, and Springfield. That is not true. All Massachusetts high school students can participate, and we hope that they do. We'll be right back to talk with Judge Ponzer more about, well, our Bill of Rights right after this. Don't know a soul who's not been battered I don't have a friend who feels at ease I don't know a dream that's not been shattered Or driven to its knees Oh, but it's all right It's all right For we lived so well more Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Hi, I'm Joanne Fink, and I'm supporting Cooley Dickinson, my community hospital, on Giving Tuesday, and I hope you will too. Fundraising proceeds benefit the Transforming Emergency Care Campaign for the Cooley Dickinson Hospital Emergency Department. Right now, every new cash donation made to the emergency department will be matched by 50% up to $1 million, thanks to the Harold Grinspoon Charitable Foundation. To give, visit CooleyDickinson.org slash give now. It's Massachusetts basketball at the Mullen Center, Saturday, December 2nd, as UMass welcomes the University of South Florida for a 1 p.m. tip-off. All young Massachusetts fans are encouraged to wear their youth basketball jersey to the game, and the first 250 kids wearing a jersey will receive a free mini basketball. Kids can also enjoy pregame poster making on the concourse. Saturday is for the kids at the Mullen Center, and they want you there. Visit UMassAthletics.com tickets to get yours today. It's your home for the resistance. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Get informed, then get involved. I'm Tom Hartman from the Tom Hartman Program. Intelligent talk, opinion, and debate. Join me every weekday, noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP.
WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back. We're talking about Bill of Rights Month student essay contest, and we're speaking with uh, U.S. District Judge Michael Ponzer. I incorrectly referred to you, Judge Ponzer, as being retired. Can you tell us what your real status is? Yes, it, it, is, uh, it, it is subtle but uh, important to those of us in my small, odd world. Uh, I am uh, what's called a senior U.S. District Court judge, which means I can cut down on my docket considerably, and I have uh, done that. I'm no longer, as we say, on the draw, taking new cases, presiding at trials, uh, handling sentencings, uh, motions, and so on. Uh, I'm doing uh, almost all civil mediation now, and I'm actually rather busy with that. I have five pending at the moment. And so I go into court uh, about uh, once a week uh, in a uh, – the best thing to call is, is semi-retired. If I were in the private sector, that's probably what, what I would call it. But I'm a senior U.S. District Court judge. I am not technically fully retired. Well, we're glad you're still in the game. Well, let me throw this to our senior host – Bill Newman. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how to take that, so we'll move right along here. <laughs> it means distinguished. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. I didn't know that, but thank you. That's not the way I'm in. I, I, I appreciate that interpretation. Yeah. I, I'd like to know, Judge Ponzer, about your reaction to the Supreme Court having issued very recently a code of conduct. You wrote about this publicly, had an op-ed that received yeah. quite considerable attention months ago, and now the Supreme Court has done what I think you called for, which is issue a code of conduct. I'm wondering what your reaction is to the Supreme Court's announcement and what was drafted. Uh, well, I'm afraid my, my reaction is, is, is rather uh, bland and predictable. I think it's a step in the right direction. I'm glad that they did it. It was a, somewhat of a scandal that they had no code of conduct in the form of a statement of their own commitment. Uh, I'm not as bothered as some people about the fact that it has no enforcement mechanism. Uh, who's going to be the enforcer? Who's going to appoint the enforcer? Who's going to appeal from the, the, the enforcers? It's, it, at some point, things have to stop. I'm a little worried about the largesse that they afford themselves on the issue of recusal. Uh, the standards are very vague, and uh, I would have to recuse myself many times when they wouldn't, and that doesn't seem fair to me. Well, the other part of the recusal, which means the judge has to not sit and decide a case, uh, is that there's an adage in the law mm -hmm. that no person should be the judge of his own case. Right. And yet when it comes to recusal, this code of conduct says you, the judge, get to decide the law, the facts, your feelings and whatever, and you decide without any review whatsoever, however you feel, whatever standards you want to use are just fine, tell us whether you're going to sit on the case. That seems to me just... Uh, almost unfathomable, but it is what the Code of Conduct says. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, I get back to my original point. You know, if there is somebody looking over the justice's shoulder and saying, did you make the correct objective decision, then who looks over the shoulder of the person looking over the shoulder? At some point, we have to uh, trust. 
We do, and it's because our future depends on it. And our future depends on another generation that's coming up. And our Constitution, well, it's a little bit, at a minimum, beleaguered at time. It's been beaten up in recent years, and it's time to get some fresh blood. So let's get kids to write essays. It's the Bill of Rights Month Student Essay Contest. You can put in those words in your browser. Uh, it is for all high school students in Massachusetts. There are cash prizes and there's a lot of uh, other kudos that students will get, including understanding more about their rights, our rights, and our Constitution. Thank you so much for joining us, Judge Ponser, today. My pleasure. And thank you for joining us, listeners. Remember, like Judge Ponser, don't just talk the talk, walk the walk. The American in me, and I guess it's just... Here's a slice of advice about pizza boxes. It's okay to recycle the entire pizza box as long as it's empty. For a long time, creasy boxes were assumed to cause recycling problems, but a new study proved they don't. It's time to capture the 3 billion pizza boxes used annually in the U.S. Visit RecycleSmartMA.org to learn more about what can and can't get recycled. After you've enjoyed tonight's pizza, turn the box inside out, discard what falls out, and recycle the rest. Brought to you by the Northampton DPW. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, 